do believe they achieve the immediate tactical, operational, and even strategic ends that they were set up to. But in the longer term, I think they made a number of strategic mistakes which could lead to their very own demise. How on earth can they th- could they think that they would be able to negotiate with Israel the release of hundreds of Palestinian terrorists from Israeli prisons when you have kidnapped toddlers? They have united an, a very divided or very otherwise divided Israeli society. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and this is a special bonus episode. With the deadly large-scale Hamas attacks against Israel recently, and what appears to be a likely ground offensive into Gaza by Israeli forces, there is, of course, a great deal to discuss. At MWI, we've published a number of articles about this moment in the long-running conflict between Israel and Hamas, and we've released episodes across our various podcasts dissecting particular elements of it. But what we haven't yet focused on is Hamas's strategy. What was the group hoping to achieve by conducting the attacks? And with an exceptionally forceful response from Israel looking likely, what are the group's objectives now? To examine those questions, I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Michele Gropi, a lecturer in the Defense Studies Department at King's College London. His insights and his perspective make for a really interesting discussion. But before we get to that discussion, a couple notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Michele Gropi. Michele, thank you for joining me on the MWI podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure. So I know you've been getting a uh, a lot of invitations to sort of provide your insights on Hamas, and 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 I really appreciate you making some time to share them with our listeners. To begin, you know, if if we just sort of jump in and and we look back to October seventh, when you woke up that day and 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 turned on the TV or your computer or maybe started scrolling through reports on social media, and and you realized just how uh, just how comprehensive this this set of attacks by Hamas was you know, just how major the scale was compared to the group's typical kind of modus operandi. What were your initial thoughts? I thank you very much, John, for this. So my initial thoughts were obviously, right, of uh, utter terror. uh, and, And I thought, wow, they are gradually, like step by step, executing a textbook form of psychological warfare. Not only were they able to mount the very spectacular attacks, obviously nothing comparable to 9-11, right? So, but the mentality, make it as gruesome as possible, as indiscriminate as possible, as lethal as possible, and not just that, record it, share it, terrorize the population as much as you can, uh, as quickly as you can, blowing the thread out of proportion. So to answer your question, I tried, I failed, right? So because I, I lived in Israel, uh, a lot of my friends are in the IDF. I also lived in the Palestinian territory. So I feel a very emotional connection to that part of the world. But I tried as hard as I could to detach myself from all the emotion 
that was coming in and attempted to start analyzing the situation as thoroughly, as academically as possible. And that was my first thought. Wow, it's like reading a terrorism textbook live and they are applying every single step that they're doing. So those were, uh, were my very first impressions, John. And and do you think Hamas, you know, as an organization, achieved what it set out to achieve? It's actually a very, another very interesting question. So let's let's try to analyze this. On one side, I believe they have uh, not only did they achieve this; they went well and beyond what they probably wanted to achieve. My gut feeling is that they weren't expecting the Israeli forces to be so, and I'm not saying this any arrogantly, John, but so unprepared. They they obviously mastered strategic surprise. They obviously wanted to do this. But in my opinion, the way they stormed Israeli towns and villages and festivals was actually pretty unexpected to them as well. And I believe so because the number, not just the killings, right? So the the horrendous killings, but the number of people being abducted, being kidnapped, in my opinion, doesn't communicate any sort of strategical plan. They wanted to do so visibly, right? So, but I really suspect they didn't want to to do so in such a massive quantity, because let's be honest. How on earth can they could they think that they would be able to negotiate with Israel the release of hundreds of um, Palestinian terrorists from Israeli prisons when you have kidnapped toddlers, when you have kidnapped uh, uh, teenagers, when you have kidnapped an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor? That's not negotiable. And they're not stupid actors. They, they're, they're cunning. So they have proven over and over to be pretty smart. Therefore, I believe, but yet again, John, this is my just gut feeling. I believe that uh, they, they didn't control it. At a certain point, it just spiraled out of control. And this is going to cost them a great deal. So to answer your question, on one level, I do believe they achieved the immediate tactical, operational, and even strategic ends that they were set up to. But in the longer term, I think they made a number of strategic mistakes which could lead to their very own demise. Israel is going in, and they know very well that they're not going to be able to sustain a prolonged, a proacted military campaign by a much more superior force, which is the Israeli. Of course, they can bunk in, and I'm sure that we're going to be talking about that. They can do all sorts of things, but they they may have unleashed uh, a very ferocious uh, retaliation. So it's mixed, John. So if I am to paraphrase that, I would say so. Yeah, and, and we'll certainly return to that discussion of, of you know, what comes next. Because as you know, all signs suggest that there will be a, a very forceful response by, uh, by the IDF. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, perhaps this exceeded Hamas's expectations in terms of what they, you know, what they would be able to, to accomplish. It certainly surprised Israel. Regular listeners might remember in the last episode of the podcast, uh, one of my guests, Liam Collins, described it not only as an intelligence failure, excuse me, um, you know, an intelligence failure is this is a failure to pick up signs that the attack was imminent. Uh, but as he argued, it was also an operational failure, essentially a failure to appreciate how the attack could happen. And, 
you know, we saw some really, really novel things here. We saw Hamas breach walls and infiltrate what were effectively light infantry forces uh, that made it very deep into Israeli territory to conduct attacks. We saw a uh, a massively larger rocket bombardment than the group had ever launched. Uh, there are reports of Hamas jamming of Israeli communications. Um, you know, there were explosives dropped on targets from 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 quadcopters. There were even motorized, I guess, essentially paragliders. It was this whole range of things that, you know, it seems Israel did not maybe imagine that Hamas would use. Uh, I guess, but, you know, what about the sort of community of, of terrorism scholars, people like you? Did this specific mix of, of weapons and capabilities and tactics, uh, all of which differed dramatically from the sort of standard operating procedures uh, that the group has demonstrated in the past, really since the first intifada, did that surprise you? Not really. But, but John, I'm not saying this any arrogantly, right? So I do not want to sound snob or anything like this. But in order to understand what happened, I think that taking a step back is useful in this sense. We see a trajectory. We see a trend. Now, in Europe, especially when we are uh, confronted by the so-called lone terrorist, then you can debate upon the terror, like I know that, right? But single actors who, who seem not to be connected to the wider, uh, um, in this case, uh, jihadist uh, uh, global movement, right? So, but just, I just say just larger, more organized organizations, right? So when you see them, um, they have been using all sorts of things, uh, uh, car rammings, uh, knife attacks, and very low-tech forms of uh, terrorism. But we shouldn't be forgetting about the following. Terrorists adapt. Terrorists learn. And whenever possible, terrorists try to mount fairly spectacular attacks using technology whenever they can, however they can. The, peculi- the peculiarity, however, the, the very good... Uh, Right, so in quotes, right? So the very good thing about this particular attack has been the combination of fairly high-tech things and very low-tech expedients and methods to jam, breach through, infiltrate a multi-million dollar defense systems amongst the best in the world. Why am I saying a combination of the two? Because in order to understand the the tragic events of October 7th, we actually have to go back at least a decade when Hamas started um, or, or, or waged cyber warfare on Israel. Uh, it started off with hacking um, IDF personal accounts on Facebook through fake accounts, and then he developed... Um, thanks to sports apps, uh, uh, thanks to promises of pornographic material, uh, you name that. So Hamas has been doing this at least until, or at least like reportedly, so and, uh, until uh, uh, 2022, um, a little bit less than one year ago. Now, we don't have the certainty that uh, Hamas did use the information obtained from uh, all the malwares that they have installed. Uh, by the way, very fairly technological ones, like even uh, uh, two of them uh, uh, that used uh, technologies which uh, uh, prevented us from detecting them, right? So that's, 
you know, that signals uh, that points towards a pretty good level of uh, technological advancement. But the point that I was trying to make is that we are not sure 100% still if they use those bits of information, but it's plausible to think so because uh, the, um, the, the, the IDF didn't know that Hamas was able to retrieve some pretty good information as for uh, some armed vehicles and most importantly, some, guess what, military bases in southern Israel. Um, I'm pretty sure, uh, but yet again, this is my gut feeling that Hamas did use some of this information just at least to get a sense of what was on the other side of the border. But their ingenuity in finding this these low-tech tools Right, so that you were mentioning, so bulldozers, right? So just breaching through the fence, paragliders flying on top of communication towers and jamming the communication systems, blinding the enemy, did everything else, like did the trick. And so, what does this tell us about terrorist organizations in in general and looking forward? That technology is still a factor. We cannot generalize. We cannot be too obsessed by it, right? So because you know, uh, Hamas uh, has used then a number of drones which are already used by Hezbollah, by the Houthis um, in uh, in uh, Yemen. We know Iran is is behind that, but most of them, most of the production is homemade, home wrecked, and therefore we can see uh, some sort of uh, quote high te- or more high tech. Um, tools being used to support low-tech tools. And this combination is very interesting. And looking forward, I think we'll be seeing more of this around. You mentioned that uh, that Hamas recorded uh, much of the attacks. And, and there's a reason we refer to major terrorist attacks as spectacular attacks, right? Because they are intended to be a spectacle. This is violence, but it's also it's also communication, right? This concept of, of uh, the propaganda of the deed, uh, a term that originally was used to refer to kind of the tactics of, uh, of and the violence of anarchist terrorists in the, in the 19th and early 20th centuries, you know, implicit in this concept, propaganda of the deed, is, is this idea that it isn't just the act that is important, but how the act is conveyed and, and, and how it's perceived by its audiences. So, so when Hamas recorded these attacks, you know, who was the audience it had in mind? Who was it communicating to? There are a number of audiences. First thing first, there is the Palestinian audience. And here, the, in my opinion, the case is so interesting. Again, let me take an apologies for that, but let me take another step back. At least allegedly, uh, it has been reported by the Times of Israel and um, uh, other local uh, news agencies. In the months preceding the um, the Operation Al-Aqsa flood, Hamas, uh, at least seemingly, had been losing support inside the Gaza Strip, just like Hezbollah, has uh, had been losing the support in southern Lebanon. Why is that? Well, first thing first, on allegations and accusations of the corruption, it's not a mystery that Hamas, or at least to some extent, does work kind of like a mafia, right? In a, in a way or the other, it has been accused of uh, thinking about its own interest more as opposed to thinking about uh, the, the well-being of the wider community. And the other thing, let us remember, the Palestinian community is no monolith. 
It has uh, different voices inside this. In the Gaza Strip, there's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but there are other groups. And most importantly, most, most notoriously, or more notoriously, in the West Bank, there, there are their political arch enemies, which is not Israel, right? So it's the Palestinian National Authority, right? So led by uh, Abbas, who, yes, he may, he may be fairly corrupted, he may be fairly detached from reality, but he's definitely an antagonist to Hamas. And uh, once again, in the weeks, even in weeks preceding the, the, um, the October 7 events, um, the Palestinian Authority has been cracking down on political dissenters, namely Hamas. So the, the audience, number one, is the Palestinian audience in Gaza to silence potential voices of dissent and in the Palestinian territories to reiterate once again, we are the real and the sole defenders of the Palestinian people, not you, not the betrayers who actually speak with Israel. Audience number one. Audience number two, obviously the Israelis. We are in your streets. We are in your homes. And no matter how much money, how much technology, how much ingenuity, how much um, external support you can get, we can still get it because resistance is stronger than anything else. And eventually we will succeed. Let us remember if we go back to their covenant, it says it quite explicitly what they want to do, how they want to do it, and um, when they want to do it. They have time, remember, and this probably resonates with a lot of our listeners now uh, who may have gone to Iraq and particularly Afghanistan. We may have the watch, they have the time, or so that's that's what they would say. And by they, I mean the Taliban, right? So in this case, but in, it doesn't differ much, right? So when it comes to, to, to Hamas, this is a very long, prolonged, proacted conflict. And in, in the end, we will, be, we will prevail because we have God, Allah, uh, on our side. We have time until the end of time, right? So to do so. Thirdly, you know, the, the um, third audience uh, is composed of... Uh, uh, the Saudis uh, in particular, and the Arab world, you have abandoned us. We had to go with Iran, and we all know um, about uh, the religious differences between the Sunni and the Shia world. But we are going to go to this very length uh, to make sure that resistance wins. And uh, we are going to go to... You know, whatever we can, just to make sure that we stop this abomination, which uh, is embodied by the Abraham Accords. So you see, John, uh, at least three big audiences. Then, uh, obviously, there are the Americans and one, but I would focus just on these three, like in particular, because it really, really, really uh, resonates. It really links with uh, the 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 facts on the ground. I'm glad you mentioned Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, uh, Iran, because, you know, Hamas really does exist on this landscape of, of, of actors, of other groups, and, and in the case of Iran, a state. And as I think you've done a, a pretty good job of illustrating, it's a really complex landscape and one that's also, you know, it's rather fractured politically, uh, religiously, and theologically, what have you. 
what are your expectations in terms of, you know, how all of these actors will or will not uh, get involved in this conflict? I, well, uh, thank you for the question. I think that when Israel is going to invade, because I don't think the Israels are going back. And so all the, as you were saying before, all the signs point towards uh, that direction, right? So that the Israelis are going in at a certain point, and when they are, they're going in big. As they do, uh, Hezbollah is absolutely attacking from the north. Uh, the Israelis uh, already do it. And that is probably the reason why there are two U.S. carriers in the area. But I believe that they are mostly to deter Iran. Let's talk about Iran for one second. And once again, we have to distinguish and and be very careful when it comes to the rhetoric and the narrative, and then when it comes to actual reality on the ground. Um, Iran, and this is very a very well established fact like we're not uh breaking ground here or anything like this so they've been supporting hamas uh, they've actually been the biggest supporters of hamas for at least 10 years right? so as the arab world gradually moved away from the palestinian cause uh, in favor right so of uh, uh, an increase in normalization with the state of israel uh, vis-a-vis the iranian um, advancing in the region, right? So obviously spearheaded by Saudi Arabia, um, Iran has been provided Hamas with all sorts of support. I've read uh, over and over that uh, the group has been receiving uh, $100 million every single year from the Islamic Republic. But in addition to funds, it's not just that, it's uh, diplomatic coverage, it's uh, training, it's uh, weapons, it's uh, um, engineering type of work. Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and therefore, w- uh, as I was saying, when, uh, when it comes to the narrative, right, so to the rhetoric, uh, Iran has been uh, the paladin, right, so has been uh, uh, the utmost uh, supporter of uh, not just the Palestinian cause, but of Hamas. And in fact, on October 7th, they have proudly saluted the the fact, right, so the the operation, praising it, framing it as self-defense. However, and this is actually very interesting, they were very, very quick at saying, oh, yes, we salute it, we love it, and we champion it, but it wasn't us. We we haven't participated in it. And, and look, my gut feeling, because... You know, I'm not there. I don't know them, but my gut feeling is that they were actually pretty sincere. I believe that there was an element of surprise on their end as well, and therefore, I I don't think we will see a direct uh, uh, intervention by Iran. I don't think we're going to be seeing a, a full scale peer to peer confrontation with the state of Israel, especially because. How is Iran doing, by the way? I don't think, I'd argue, not that great. And for quite a while, it's one thing to rally the people around the flag and saying, we are the only ones in the Muslim world being the only dispensers, right? And purveyors of the truth, which is in this case, their version of uh, Shia Islam. But we are the only ones who are actually defending the people and we're supporting uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, but it is another thing to actually sell 
to a very dis- disenfranchised, to a very detached Iranian public uh, war with Israel, right? And um, the over, the, I believe, uh, I don't remember the exact figures, but if I recall correctly, about like 40% of the Iranian population, if not more, is under the age of 30. We have seen how preoccupied the regime has been with all the revolts, with younger people demanding, not asking nicely, like demanding more equal rights, demanding more democracy, demanding more openness towards the West. I still remember the images of uh, all my, uh, well, peers, right? So really, right? So in, in university, refusing to step on uh, the Americans and the Israeli flags. This sends a pretty, a pretty strong message. And at the end of the day, John, uh, and I'm going to conclude here, uh, every regime looks up for itself. They want to survive. And if there is one thing which scares the Ayatollahs more than Israel, is their own people, and particularly young women without the veil. You mentioned earlier uh, something that's that's probably intuitive to some, but I think is really important, and that's that Palestinians are not this monolithic entity. Besides the divisions between Hamas and Gaza and, and the, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, even within Gaza, Hamas is not uniformly popular, obviously. There were, there were protests as recently as, I guess, I think the week before the attacks by Gaza residents against Hamas leaders' corruption. So, you know, is this likely to take shape uh, in your, uh, from your perspective, is this likely to take shape as a war of, you know, sort of Israel against Hamas? Or do you think the group will manage to, to marshal wider support among uh, Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere, uh, you know, so that it, it maybe evolves not only in perception, but potentially in reality into, into a war that is effectively one between Israel and Palestinians, uh, not just Israel and Hamas. And this is clearly not in Israel's interest for, for a whole host of reasons. But, you know, do you think there's a strong likelihood of that occurring or, or maybe even that it's inevitable? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is a great question. So the only thing that the Palestinians are hoping, uh, apologies, that Hamas is actually hoping for is for this to spill over to two other fronts. And they know that Israel may not be capable of doing something like this. Hamas, uh, Hezbollah's arsenal, uh, supposedly, is gigantic. And they have amassed a number of missiles. Think that I was in Israel at uh, uh, the Global Summit on Terrorism before the the Syrian civil war. So we're talking about a number of years ago, right? And even then, they were some major Israeli security experts uh, were saying uh, the Third Lebanon War is not a matter of uh, what, of if, it is a matter of when. So they were already preparing for that. Then the Syrian, the Syrian civil war broke out, Hezbollah went to the rescue, COVID came in a number of years later, and everything like kind of got frozen. But let us not remember that, uh, or, or apologies, let us not forget that Iran has been uh, given a lot of weapons to to them as well. And actually, Hezbollah is uh, uh, arguably even more powerful than Hamas, is uh, more aligned, uh, ideologically speaking, with Iran, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So this could be incredibly dangerous and uh, not ideal. In the West Bank, uh, and I absolutely second your observations, 
the Palestinian Authority has been uh, so has denounced the indiscriminate killings of uh, uh, innocent uh, Israelis, but at the same time has kind of reiterated that this was uh, due to. Israeli neocolonialism, uh, siege on Gaza, and uh, uh, crimes uh, uh, for many years to come. Um, therefore, uh, there was a, a, at least a veil, a sort of justification. And uh, whenever something like this happens, people are still going to protest. The people are still going to get their 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 uh, uh, their lives, you know, like very very fired up, right? So in, uh, in, uh, in a way or the other, and I absolutely fear that there is going to be uh, a boomerang effect, absolutely, in, uh, uh, in, in the West Bank. Cognizant, cognizant of the previous months of military confrontation, right? So in cities such as Janine, I'm pretty sure that you remember, right? And this is a very, very dangerous. Last but not least, Inside of Israel, what about uh, the Palestinian Arab community, in which, you know, for the first time, arguably, has taken up arms in uh, in recent months against Israel, even if they are Israelis, even if they are seemingly or somewhat integrated into Israeli society. The point being, and here I'm going to conclude, John, is that for Israel, it doesn't look good. Well, then I kind of want to return to this idea that we discussed earlier that that the attacks uh, by Hamas achieved more than the group probably thought uh, that that its its fighters would be able to achieve. My view has been that you know from the moment Hamas began began planning this, they had to have also planned for an Israeli response. But that response was was always sort of going to be calibrated based on how heavy the damage inflicted by the Hamas attacks was. This is I think is fairly logical and. This was the deadliest day Israel had suffered in its history. Yep. Um, you know, so I, it's natural then that, that it's going to generate a response that is more forceful than than any previously, you know, any previous military response to Hamas attacks. Now I know that you know prognostication is 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 dangerous territory sometimes, so I don't want to put you on the spot to to sort of forecast the outcome of this conflict. But let me ask generally. If Israel sets as its objective the complete dismantling of Hamas, an organization with tens of thousands of fighters, uh, one that is deeply embedded into the social and the political fabric of Gaza, given that it is ruled there for over a decade and a half, if dismantling it organizationally and completely destroying its capability to launch attacks from Gaza is Israel's military objective, is there a likelihood that, that it can be successfully accomplished? So, uh, and thank you for the question. Uh, let me walk you back uh, once more. Uh, in Israel, uh, especially in Israeli strategic thinking, uh, there, there, we, we cannot uh, disregard, we cannot belittle the so-called siege mentality. In essence, uh, everybody's against us. Peace is not very feasible. It's not very achievable, uh, really. War, conflict uh, is going to erupt uh, periodically, right? So at intervals, right? So, um, and therefore the only thing that uh, we can do, um, when I say we, right? So I'm obviously paraphrasing what I have learned uh, whilst in Israel. The only thing that we can do is to retaliate pretty massively, prolong the enemy's inability to execute uh, 
um, future attacks and reinstate the so-called deterrent cycle. And in fact, we can see that since Hamas' inception, and particularly since 2005, right, so since uh, Israeli withdrawal from the Strip, this has been pretty much the case in every single instance, pretty much, right? So uh, obviously with a number of important caveats, but pretty much, right? So Israel never wanted to get rid of Hamas um, due to a number of reasons. But this time, such an option is not available anymore because that cycle that I have mentioned has been broken, perhaps irreversibly. The, the type of uh, technical ingenuity uh, in, in ingenuity that uh, Hamas has shown, right, that doesn't allow Israel to be secure anymore, right? So to have uh, one of the most advanced security fences and security systems in the world being jammed, being breached, uh, giving way, right, so to hordes of people on pickups uh, and motorbikes and something like this, like, uh, bringing, bringing us back to the Holocaust and the Middle Ages, really, right? So because nobody uh, fights like that anymore, right? So um, it just that just means uh, and just warrants an unprecedented, uh, ferocious uh, reaction uh, on the side of Israel. I'm not advocating, right? So uh, for that necessarily, obviously, I'm not advocating for all the pain, for all. Uh, the the death toll that we're going to be seeing on the Israeli side. We're not advocating for all the suffering that is going to be inflicted upon the innocent Palestinian population. So this is a tragedy, right? So, I mean, so let me make that very clear. But as you were saying, the Israeli the the, the Israelis are going in, and therefore, uh, to answer your question, I believe that Hamas made and partners made a hugely strategic mistake because the Israelis cannot just simply, quote, bomb and go in the way that they used to do. This time is uh, is the end, right? So they're going in to sort the issue once and for all. And arguably, unlike the past, they are willing to lose a lot of men. They mobilized 400,000 reservists, they have summoned the help of the United States, and the United States will be will be very willing, right? So to support uh, its closest ally in the region and arguably in the world, with Britain, obviously, should things uh, deteriorate quickly. And Israel knows it, and they are more than, more than ever determined to eradicate Hamas, right? Uh, and so, and I believe that this has been a, a strategic mistake, John. Let me make a very last, um, one last final point. Um, I know it's fantasy, it's science fiction, but just bear with me. Let's say that on October 7th, uh, Hamas managed to breach in through the through defense, attack just military bases, kidnap just IDF soldiers, as despicable, brutal, right? So as that would have been it would have been better. It would have been such a strategic thing to do on their end. The world would have said, yeah, this is very bad, but at the same time, they have attacked IDS soldiers, so there is at least some sort of legitimacy, and even in legal terms, it it, it could be more defensible. Um, 
they would have been able to negotiate the release of hostages uh, much more so effectively, in my at least in my opinion, right? So with uh, with Israel, and last but not least, uh, the world would have supported them, and uh, an Israeli ferocious uh, ground invasion would not have had the same support, or at least tacit support. Uh, Right, so because the world now is saying, yeah, well, we don't like that, and I am amongst those, by the way. Uh, I don't like that, but it is fairly inevitable because inaction is politically not palatable, nor is uh, inactivity. You have to react, and you have to react stronger because this is nine eleven, right? So for them, actually, uh, making a proportion, it is even worse, probably like to them because it brings memories. Like to um, of uh, of the Holocaust. Very last point: had they done, had Hamas done something like this, it would have been uh, probably a checkmate to Netanyahu and Netanyahu's government at a time of unprecedented internal division, in which Netanyahu, uh, who by the way in the past prided himself to be. Uh, the the only fierce defender of Israel, right? So and something like this, just just targeting the IDF and communicating this sense of insecurity would have been just spot on. It would have been so strategic and putting him in such a horrible condition to woof just being uh, you know fired, sacked, uh, impeached instead. What they did, and I told you, I don't think it was this strategic, warrants, you know, massive, ferocious retaliation. And on top of that, at least in this moment, then people will pay both at the intelligence level and at the political level. But for now, they have united an, a very divided or very otherwise divided Israeli society under the flag. People flying from back, back to Israel from all over the world to go fight. That tells something. Yeah, it certainly does. Well, Michele, there's, there's you know, clearly a lot more we could discuss, but I think we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you again uh, for joining me and for uh, sharing your thoughts and, and your insights with our listeners. No, thank you very much, John, for having me, and thank you to all the listeners. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, slash X, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.